Welcome to Movable Dough, the podcast where I interview and promote living composers. Join me as I talk with composers about their current projects, their past successes and setbacks, and their personal journeys. For more information about this podcast, please visit sdcompose.com slash movable dough. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Dough. Today, I will be speaking with Dr. Fahed Siadat. Fahed is a performer, conductor, composer, and entrepreneur. He has performed as a soloist with such groups as LA's groundbreaking opera company, The Industry, and the Grammy award-winning Parch Ensemble. He is regularly commissioned to compose for concert music ensembles, dance companies, and theater troupes. And he holds degrees from Vanderbilt University and the California Institute of the Arts, from which he had received the degree of Doctor of Musical Arts. In 2012, he founded Sia Dot Music Publishing Incorporated, a company devoted to the advocacy of new choral works and emerging composers. Fahed Siadat, thank you for joining me today. Welcome to Movable Dough. Thanks, Steve. It's very nice to be invited to be here. All right. So when I looked at your website, I was especially interested in the first sentence of your bio. It says, Fahed Siadat creates interdisciplinary storytelling works folding together words, sound, and movement into ritualistic narratives. So let's start there. There's a lot to unpack in that sentence. <laughs> okay, so what does that mean? Well, I think it, it makes the most sense if um, you put it in the context of the artists who um, have been influential to my work, right? So when I was growing up, I would say that the, the people who influenced my work the most were like the 90s, a Seattle grunge, alt rock, and like heavy metal artists. And uh -huh. so if you think of like my work in the context of, I don't know, someone like Marilyn Manson or Trent Reznor, I think it sort of does what I'm describing there, right? It sort of folds together myth and movement and music and visuals to create holistic stories. And I'm really interested in bringing that sort of aesthetic and those kinds of ideas that have been really common in popular music, certain kinds of popular music, um, into the, the quote-unquote classical or concert music world. Yeah, so are you, are you trying to pull direct influences from rock and grunge and things like that and incorporating those directly into your music? I think it's inevitable since it's the music that I, I listen to the most probably still. <laughs> um, and uh, it's definitely the, the music of my youth, you know, so it's, it's often what I have in my ear. But I think there's just in general an aesthetic quality that I'm interested in, in terms of, of um, what another friend of mine, uh, my, my colleague Olan Jones, calls mythic storytelling. And that's, you know, looking at these sort of broad, epic, overly humanistic ideas and trying to um, tell, tell stories that that touch on some of those universal human qualities, like the, the, the look at aspects of the human condition and um, yeah. sort of the extraordinary aspects of, of what it means to be human. And I think yeah. that that's something that's often been explored in, in these other genres, right? So, For sure. So speaking of telling stories, let's talk about your story a little bit. One thing that wasn't on your bio was, you know, where you grew up. Oh, where, yeah. where, where did you start? What's your story? Yeah, so um, so I was actually born in Eugene, Oregon, the home of the University of Oregon, go Ducks. And uh, I moved to Southern Oregon, uh, Ashland, when I was very young, like six years old. Um, it's, it's the home of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. And it's a, a little hippie, artsy-fartsy town just over the California border. Um, 
my parents are Middle Eastern immigrants. My mother comes from Bahrain and my father comes from Iran. They both ended up in uh, the US to do college and that's where they met and found love, got married, had me. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so I, I grew up in this sort of particular small town in the Pacific Northwest and um, but was also like blessed to be around uh, a lot of art because of the Shakespeare Festival. There's a lot of music and art. The high school where I went is just down the street from the university, um, like literally a, a block away from <laughs> Southern Oregon University. And, you know, we used to use a lot of their resources for like our high school musical productions and, and things like that. So, um, yeah, so I grew up with a very sort of traditional art uh, background in, the, in that way. Were you taking like piano lessons as a kid or yeah, yeah. singing or, or what were you doing? Yeah, that was definitely a part of my upbringing was, you know, piano and all those sorts of things were, um, were considered part of, you know, your edifying upbringing, right? Um, it's in my family, I think, and in, in a lot of the Middle East, the arts and music is not really something that people think of or pursue as a career. It's just a part of, you know, like being a, a full and complete sort of liberal arts person, right? Um, and so I was always encouraged to take piano, which I hated. I stopped taking lessons in middle school. I told my mom I was done, but then I had to do something else and I started playing clarinet and band, you know? And so I was always like forced to do music yeah. <laughs> um, in, in funny ways. And I really came to start loving it when I joined band. It was in middle school, high school, and even through college, I played clarinet. Um, and I loved doing ensemble work. That was a really big change for me. I, I think I didn't like the the sort of social isolation of being a pianist. And, um, and it was through that I started realizing I wanted to pursue music and when I was in high school. And so I just started taking every music class, jazz band, I was playing piano, clarinet and the wind band. I started taking the, the other wind band so I could pick up a second instrument. I think I was playing percussion and oboe for a little while. That was, that was a misstep. Um, I love the oboe, but the oboe did not love me. Uh, and then I, I joined choir when I was a junior in high school, just as, as a way to, to do another musical elective. And, um, and I realized that that was like singing was actually um, a thing that I was, I was good at. Or not, I should, maybe I wasn't good at it. I was loud at it in high school. <laughs> I was very loud at it. Um, but I think there was more potential for me there. And um, I ended up going to college uh, in Nashville to, uh, to study music. And I, I initially entered the program as a performer and then switched to the composition program. I realized that that was my, that was my real passion. So, yeah. so when did you, that was the, when was sort of that moment that you decided that music is what you wanted to do? Like, what pushed you that direction? I think, you know, starting in middle school, I, I, I got really into music. The music I was mentioning earlier, I was listening to a lot of Nirvana. You know, I got really into The Doors. The Doors were a huge influence um, on me and things like that. And, and in middle school, I don't know, I think I, looking back on it, it seems obvious, but I used to always want to have lunch in the band room and I'd like drag my friends there, you know, <laughs> to hang out so I could like tinker along the piano, piano while we um, while we were... Uh, having lunch or during our break. And I remember also when I was, um, I think it was when I was in middle school, my family moved out of town and into the countryside where we didn't have um, TV anymore. I think we got like three and a half channels. And so I started spending my time um, playing piano instead, you know, instead of watching TV or, or something like that. 
Um, and so I, it just started to develop like slowly, you know, and then I had friends who I admired who were getting really into music and they were creating arrangements and starting to do original songs. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. I could do that. Um, and then in high school, it really hit me. I started, I think, you know, there's just that adolescent um, heightened state of emotion that like teenagers live in all the time. And I found myself being really affected by, like emotionally affected by the music that we were performing in band. We had a, a great teacher and she curated really wonderful stuff for us to perform. And um, yeah, and I, was, I just remember being moved by it all the time. And, and I think I, I had the realization that I wanted to bring those sorts of experiences to other people. And that was, that was a really big turning point. And so I, I began composing when I was in, in high school. Um, my big senior project was writing a very bad piece for wind ensemble. Um, <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. I had almost no instruction in composition. Right. I was just, you know, like working with a computer notation program and my very kind band director um, mentored me uh, as a conductor. Uh, I was the drum major for the marching band and things like that. So I was getting some basic, you know, pattern practice. And she coached me on how to lead an ensemble and then a rehearsal. And she allowed me to conduct my own piece. And so I was, you know, I was 17, 18 years old, and I was on the podium and I was trying to lead my own piece. And I was, you know, making edits and it was just doing all like the things. It was, it was yeah. a really great way to get thrown into the fire. And I really loved that experience. And so uh, I knew I wanted to do that in college. Um, I just didn't really know how to how to go about it. And so once I had gotten my foot in the door into a music program as a singer, I said, actually, I really want to compose. And, uh, and I was already there. So they had to sort of uh, deal with my presence. And, and uh, I got to switch. I got to switch degrees and I eventually nice. became a composer. So did you keep a recording of that high school performance for your archives? It is. It is somewhere. I think there's, it's on a tape. Uh, on a tape. Actually, nice. yeah, you know, it's on a tape somewhere. Very nice. So I want to just quickly ask uh, about your name. So your name, Fahedziadat, that is, uh, it's a unusual name for me. Uh, it, it's one that I've never come across before. Can you tell me uh, about its origin? Is it Arabic so, in origin? So uh, as I was saying, my mother's from Bahrain, which is an Arabic speaking country. And so my first name is Arabic. Uh, I was named after my grandfather. I have I don't know, I think four or five different cousins that now share my name or variations <laughs> on my name um, as a sort of like uh, to honor my, gr my grandfather. Um, and then my last name is Persian. So it's, it's sort of a funny thing. My, my parents come from different Middle Eastern countries where they speak different languages. And so English was the common language in my home growing up. Um, and so, you know, this is very common, I think, among first generation Americans. I don't speak either of my parents' Uh, languages. Uh -huh. um, I do speak Spanish and Portuguese for completely different reasons. <laughs> um, but yeah, so so my and it, what's what's sort of funny about my name is um, my parents actually pronounce it differently since they come from different countries and different language backgrounds. Yeah. <laughs> How do they pronounce it? Uh, I don't even know if I can if I can say it correctly. Um, but <laughs> my uh, my my mother, it's more like uh, it's like Fahad, and my. Um, father is more like fad <laughs> interesting yeah so but uh i will say you know when, when i do meet uh, arabic speakers and they speak to me and they say my name it is it feels like warm rain you know there's just a certain i've gotten used to people um 
pronouncing my name Fahed with like the emphasis on the second syllable and a sort of schwa in the beginning and things like that. Uh, and it's fine. I'm very comfortable with that. It's what I'm, it's what I'm used to hearing. But whenever I hear someone say my name the way that like my mother did, who I mostly grew up with, um, it is it is comforting in a way that is difficult to describe. Yeah. Do you do you find that you have any cultural influence from your parents that shows up in your music? I'm sure. I don't. I think it might be difficult to to point to anything in uh, specific. You Were know, you listening um, to I, to any uh, Iranian or Persian music? Very little. Um, I think my mother every now and then, like she would listen to some um, Arabic pop music, or mm -hmm. you know, like a older maybe older pop music almost like arabic folk music kind of things um but, you know there are really deep arabic classical traditions and persian classical traditions but i don't think my parents were neither of them were are musicians they're not artists um and so they weren't involved in in those traditions i grew up listening to like a lot of 80s pop because that's what my parents listened to when they like the 70s and 80s pop uh, like american pop was what they listened to when they first came here uh -huh. and that's what they came to love you know <laughs> and so yeah. listen to a lot of sticks i remember gordon lightfoot um yeah <laughs> things like that nice. my father loves cat stevens you know um so but i, I think that there are I, I think that there are certain things that I put in my music that have similarities to things that you find in, um, in, in like Persian classical music in particular. Um, mm -hmm. For instance, like a lot of my music is drone based. I really, I, I'm not so interested in, it depends on certain of my music. I'm, I, I'm less or more interested in like harmonic motion and more interested in like texture and rhythm and things like that, which is really common in, um, in Persian classical music. I would, so that's, that's like certain similarities, but I, I can't say that like, you know, culturally I'm, I'm very American in, in, in many ways. And, and again, this is, it's hard to describe. I'm, I can't even say I'm very American. I'm very first generation American, <laughs> right? And that's, and that's a very particular sort of um, cultural place to find oneself. My wife is also a first generation American. She's Filipino. And this is something that, that we discuss a lot, that even though we come from different cultural backgrounds right i'm middle eastern and she's filipino the um the experience of being a first generation american is very similar mm -hmm. neither of us speak our parents language we both grew up with one culture in um, our social world and one culture in our home like one set of values in one place and, and maybe a, a slightly different set of values in a different place right. and we knew that there were different ways that we had to interact with with people and things like that you know so it was just the, 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 it's a very particular thing i think to be a uh to, to be a first generation person in uh in a different culture yeah what do you think has been the greatest roadblock for you in becoming a professional composer and performer um i would say that it it was simply my my family's inexperience with the field that I've chosen as a profession, right? Mm -hmm. That there was not, um, there were, and, and this is, I don't think this is unique to, to first generation Americans, um, but there was not like a sense of uh, a model for what this looks like as a profession. And so while my parents were very encouraging um, about me pursuing the arts, um, there was also a, so that you can become a teacher right? Uh -huh. Like you'll pursue it because that's, that's what we see as a model of how to make a living. And there wasn't really an understanding of how to do that. There wasn't um, 
my, a lot of my, my colleagues now that I'm in the professional world, I learn about how they grew up singing their whole life. They were singing in choirs in church and in youth choirs and music camps. And that was just not part of what I did growing up at all. It wasn't, um, it was something that I really had to build on my own. And, uh, and I think that's created certain kinds of roadblocks, right? I, mm -hmm. um, I wasn't a natural, like I didn't have years of experience reading sheet music, right? right? And so when it came to being a singer and being a chorister and having to sight sing, that was not something that I was so, so proficient at. Whereas I've got, you know, plenty of colleagues who can just sight read anything off the page. And, and over the last 10 years of doing it professionally, I've gotten quite good at it. Right. And I, <laughs> and I specialize in doing like, ex, like innovative, difficult, experimental new music for vocal ensembles. Like I'm, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm pretty good now, but, yeah. um, but it's definitely taken uh, a lot more time and work. Whereas when I was starting, there was people who were younger than me that were just like so amazingly proficient at this kind of stuff. Yeah. So I, I want to ask uh, sort of a musical based question here. Uh, so I, I noticed listening through several of your pieces that you like exploring different vocal timbres, uh, uh, as well as uh, extended vocal techniques, you know, throat singing, overtones, extreme ranges, etc. Uh, in fact, you published an article entitled Exploring Timbre in Choral Music. Uh, so how did you decide that this was something you wanted to explore in your music? Where, where did that decision come from? Oh, it always goes back to Marilyn Manson every <laughs> single time, you know, and my, my deep love of heavy metal. Um, no, I, I, I mean, that's, that's true, but I think that it actually goes, uh, it's related to this idea of being a performer and a composer, right? That, that again, in this conservatory world, we, we often insist that people treat those things differently. And, um, and I had a really hard time with that because I wanted to reconcile them. I was both. And, I, and for my undergraduate composition recital, I remember performing in most of it. Like I wrote stuff for myself and mm -hmm. that was idiomatic for my own voice. And those pieces, I think were in many ways the most successful ones, right? I was like, well, this is, these are the particular things that, that my voice does. And, um, and I eventually um, made my way to the California Institute of the Arts where I did my master's and then later my doctorate. And, um, and that was a place that really embraced this idea. And it was the first place that I, that I encountered that did embrace this idea of the performer composer, right? Um, which again is super common in the pop world. Um, people who are creating things that are idiomatic for them that are not necessarily notatable that are dealing with sound as an integral part of the expressiveness of their yeah. music if, like, for instance i can listen to a few seconds of guitar distortion and i can tell you whether it's Jimi hendrix or rammstein right like it just it's just they're totally distinct sounds it takes me no time to key into that those particular timbres and i think that's true for a lot of people um, th those timbres are an integral part of those, of the, the, the sound of those groups, right? Mm -hmm. When we talk about Seattle grunge, like it's got a very particular kind of sound, but even then Alice in Chains and Soundgarden and Pearl Jam, like they, they, they are distinct in, in their timbral choices. Every singer is not trying to sound the same, which is something that sort of occurs in, in classical music, that we're all taught a particular technique as singers, and we all aspire to some sort of platonic singerly ideal, right. right? Where there is this ideal bel canto sound that we're all working towards. And that's not true in other genres, right? In 
in the study of, of jazz singing, they emphasize the singer's individual sound. And the, a lot of the training is around the ear and around um, like, uh, uh, you know, developing your scales and your arpeggios, your theory, your listening, being able to listen to and interact with chord changes. But at no point are all the jazz singers trying to all sound like Ella Fitzgerald. Like that's not the, that's not the goal that never has been. And, and so, you know, as part of this like, performer composer culture, I realized that there was that I could move away from that bel canto ideal and I could start exploring what are the sounds that I like, what feels intuitive for me, and how can I start incorporating that into my my compositions. And then uh, the, referencing the article that you had mentioned, how can we start to bring that idea into music that, like how can I bring that idea into music that I am not performing myself? Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah, I can make all kinds of weird sounds into a microphone. I don't have to worry about notating it. I might make myself a note, say, oh, yeah, this is when I do that weird, bright, growly thing or whatever, <laughs> you know, but how do I how do I create those instructions for other people to perform? And I think right. there is something about embracing timbre as an expressive device, especially for choirs, that gives us access to different sounds, uh, a level of innovation and experimentation and, and just quite frankly, um, expression without relying on rhythmic or harmonic or melodic complexity, which yeah. is a real important consideration when you're dealing with choirs because so many choirs are avocational, right? There are 200,000 choral or something like that, choral ensembles in the US, 10% of all Americans sing and inquire on a weekly basis, according to the Choral Impact Study, right? Mm -hmm. And the vast, vast majority of those are not professional ensembles, right? And so there are certain considerations that a composer has to work around if they want their music to be widely performed, especially right. in terms of harmonic and rhythmic and melodic complexity. But by embracing sound and timbre, we can we can add a new expressive dimension to that music that I think is really satisfying. And I, you know, I resist the term extended technique because it references a standard technique uh -huh. that I think is, is particularly um, re referencing this bel canto ideal or maybe right. like the English choral cathedral ideal for choral music or something like that. Whereas, um, you know, if, if we move away from that, we can just be more specific and say, well, I'm not dealing with extended techniques. I'm, I'm dealing with a variety of techniques. I'm, I'm dealing with explorations of timbre, which we do all the time. We know that gospel and musical theater are not to be sung the same way. It's just not part of our notation, right? It's something that's informed by style and genre. Um, but for, for new music, there isn't a set idiom for how, and performance practice, for yeah. how to approach the style and sound of a particular piece. And so I think there's a lot of really interesting room to incorporate, yeah, these ideas of sound and timbre as one of the, the qualities that we, that we compose with. That is a, a great way to look at that. Uh, I, I think you've just adjusted some of my thinking and I appreciate that. All right, after a quick break, we'll talk with Fahed about some of his compositions. Welcome back. My guest today is Fahad Siadat. All right. So let's talk more specifically about some of your music. Mm -hmm. So far on my podcast, I focused mostly on choral music since that's the world I travel in. 
Uh, but I actually want to start with one of your non-choral works, your epilogues for solo piano. Three pieces, one in A-flat minor, one in C major, one in B-flat minor. First of all, an epilogue to what? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I would I would answer that with another question. A prologue to what? An intermezzo to what? Right? Oh, I, I think that all the time. If I see a piece called prologue, I'm like, okay, what is this a prologue to? Totally. And, yeah. and, and so that was the inspiration behind the the naming of those pieces, right? Intermezzi were originally written as short interlude pieces between scenes and operas to, right. to cover uh, scene change noise, right? Uh, preludes, right? I think uh, imply a certain kind of story that is to come, or maybe they did originally, in fact, uh, prelude uh, some, some other different story. And so as part of my, my interest in musical storytelling, I had the, the consideration of imagining a certain kind of story and then what piece would end that story? What would be the epilogue music? And so that's where this, that's where this came from. Okay. And if you see the full titles of the pieces, they're actually quite long. Um, they, they will say things like, I don't remember the exact wording, but it's like the epilogue to a story in which a man loses his shoes and has to walk home barefoot at night. Right. Okay. Like it's, and so the, the full title actually tells uh, one of them is to, uh, an epilogue to a story in which two people sit and patiently wait for the sunset. Right. So that's the story is two people patiently waiting for the sunset. And then this is what happens after this is the music that accompanies the, the rolling credits. The rolling credits. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so these, and these are old pieces of mine. I think I wrote these in, you know, 12 years ago or something like that. Uh, they've recently come up because, um, uh, there was, you know, as part of my usual, oh, there's a call for scores. It's free. I'll send stuff. Yeah. Um, a, a pianist had uh, had picked them up. A pianist in Georgia, um, Chris Carlisle, and he said he was. He sent me an email and said, "Hey, I was playing through your pieces that you submitted, and one of my students walked by and poked their head and said, hey, what is that? That's cool. So I've decided to program your pieces <laughs> <laughs> at my student's recommendation, and uh, he ended up um, uh, touring them." And then and then recording them for for a recent album. So I mean, these aren't pieces that I, I think of very often, and I think that they're definitely in it. Uh, they're sort of not quite student works. I was a master student when I mm -hmm. wrote them, but they they come from an exercise. I, the first epilogue came from what kind of piece can I write with only five notes, right? And so it's only got five notes, and then you know, I try to create like a whole, you know, A and B section sort of thing out of that. And a lot of them were just exploring minimalist or post-minimalist ideas in, in, um, in, in piano music, which isn't something that I really do anymore, but it's, they exist and yeah, they get played sometimes. Yeah, I actually uh, noticed a bit of that minimalist um, influence. I was going to ask if there were any specific minimalist composers that you uh, were influenced by as you were writing? Um, I would say that, you know, I listened to my fair share of Philip Glass and Steve Reich, but my, in terms of people who, inf who, who continue to influence my work, I would say that it's John Luther Adams, who mm -hmm. is sort of a minimalist. Um, I first met him when I was an undergraduate. He was a composer in residence for a, okay. a little while. And I just absolutely, <laughs> I'm never going to forget. Um, I, I was stunned by his stuff. I just thought, I was like, this is like nothing I've ever heard before. I thought it was absolutely incredible. And I remember my friends were like, oh, of course, we don't get John Adams. We get John, quote, Luther Adams. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and they were like, what is this like pan diatonic wash of his music? This is so stupid and so simple. And I was like, do I have terrible taste? 
Like, what, <laughs> what am I missing here? Like, I think this is absolutely stunning. I later found out that um, John Luther Adams went to CalArts, and which was part of my, um, I, I had some other friends that ended up going there and it was recommended to me by uh, one of my composition mentors. But when I saw that John Luther Adams was one of the alum, I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like I, he really stood out to me as, as this person. And I feel extremely validated in my taste that he eventually won a Pulitzer. So, <laughs> um, All right. so yeah, yeah, him and Meredith Monk, I would say, are my two biggest minimalist composers okay. influences. All right. So let's listen to just a part of the epilogue in A flat minor performed by Chris Carlisle. All right. So next, let's move to one of your choral works, uh, sure. The Vast Sea. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this recording that we're going to listen to is from Hex, which is an ensemble for which you're artistic director, correct? Correct. Okay. So let's listen to just the beginning of the first movement of this work.
So in the YouTube comments, uh, as I was looking at this, uh, I saw that you, or in the description, you cited influence of Stockhausen's uh, Stimmung, which I can definitely hear. Uh, so what, what's the story behind this piece? What was the genesis of the creation? Yeah, so, uh, so I wrote this piece when I was doing my, my doctorate. Um, and the, and I was, it was a convergence of a bunch of different things. I was studying uh, microtonal theory. I was getting really into tuning systems, looking at um, the overtone series and how that influences composition, which led me to uh, Stimmung by Stockhausen, which is, you know, a piece that only has notes in the overtone series. It's like, you know, five notes long also, or six <laughs> notes. Um, and, and it's an hour long of just sort right. of improvisations around like a, basically like a dominant seventh chord. And it's not, I shouldn't even call it a dominant seventh chord because that implies that it has some sort of harmonic function. It's just uh, on C, E, G, and B flat is really what it is. <laughs> or actually maybe it's a whole step lower. Anyway, it doesn't matter. The, uh, so there was that, there was, um, you know, continuing to explore my own interest in like different vocal timbres um, and specifically timbres that that emphasized different kinds of overtones and harmonics, right? So there is like the sort of, you know, overtone singing type of stuff. There is um, another a Sardinian tradition called the Tenori di Oniferi, where they, um, four singers, like they, they, they huddle up really close to each other. They put their arms around each other and three of them create this uh this like highly tuned very bright chord that makes harmonics pop and then mm. one of them is a soloist that does melodies over it strongly encourage uh you to check out some of that stuff it's really yeah. really cool it's a beautiful tradition and um and so so basically the opening chords that you heard in the vast sea are i, I i'm not using that technique that technique takes a great deal of expertise and um and, and specialization, but uh, it certainly influenced me asking the singers for a particularly bright mm -hmm. uh, sound that pops those overtones. And then the, the chord that the lower voices are singing are, um, are just like CGB flat. And then on top of it, right, the, the treble voices are um, doing the D and the E. So they're just filling out like all the notes in like the first seven harmonics of the overtone series. And then that gives me some room to do a, a little solo over it where I add a few other harmonics. Like uh, there's one point where I, I add a quarter step, um, which is like the 11th harmonic in the series. Right. Anyway, it was just me diving down this super nerdy microtonal just intonation <laughs> rabbit hole. So, um, so that, that's that's where a lot of that that piece came from. And then I started adding some some lyrics. I was doing a lot of research around different mystical traditions, and um, music and religiosity have have always been like tightly intertwined for me. Um, okay. Music is is I would say is like very much uh, my spiritual practice in a way. And, uh, and so this, this, this text started um, showing up for me that was around, um, that had some kind of like 
spiritual overtones to it, I think. Um, but there's also just like a story, <laughs> you know, yeah. as, as so much of my music is, again, is narrative driven. So I had this like image of, you know, people rocking along a, uh, a boat ride somewhere like on a ship, you know, and, um, and sort of invoking Gabriel for protection. And then the the second movement, um, which people can check out on, on YouTube or wherever, um, is like you know, the ship at night, very calm and mysterious. And then the third one is a storm. And then that same invocation at, at the end comes, but it's more like a plea for help and mercy. Um, not just like a bless us on this journey, but oh crap, we've just encountered some bad stuff. And there's a sort of ambiguous whether they've, they've made it or not. So wh whether those stories are, are overtly um, told in like the text or the, the music itself, I often have little narrative ideas like that that help me guide the um, the arc and the form of a piece. Yeah, that's fabulous. You know, I I was really interested in that first movement because it took you about two and a half minutes to get to the text. <laughs> you know, you're, you're exploring these these awesome sounds, um, and, and so I I've tried to look at it in the framework of the full three movements and say it's not necessary to get to the text right away because you're telling the story over these three three movements. Um, but I, I did think that was a, a really cool choice to just sort of explore those sounds for a while and set up what you wanted to say before you got to what you were gonna say. Yeah, I think, you know, a, a lot of my choral music actually doesn't, um, doesn't have text or has very little text. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's very common, right? And all instrumental works, do the same thing. They, right. they tell a, a narrative, they create an arc, maybe they even want to tell like an overt story, you know, a pastoral or something like that, just with sound. And uh, I think we can, we can easily do the same thing with voices. I mean, the voice is so versatile and it has so many color options, right? That mm -hmm. I, I think is one of the reasons why people are um, so attracted to writing alleluias they don't have to worry about text. They can just focus on the musical ideas and just repeat Alleluia. Um, I don't come from a Christian background and so, or a Jewish background or any background where they use the word Hallelujah. So I'm, I, that doesn't really do anything for me. I would rather just use open vowels and, and different timbres um, to explore mm -hmm. those musical ideas with the voice. Yeah. So let's go in an experimental direction. Sure. Okay. The beacon, be sturdy and full of hope. For voice yeah. and electronic samples. Okay, so listening to this piece was a, a unique and mesmerizing experience for me. Uh, music like this is not in my normal field of experience, uh, and I'm sure it may be new for some of our audience as well. So could you tell us more about what we're about to listen to before I play the clip? Sure. So there is a, I, I, I'll put it in this context, there's a big difference between what is happening in the new music world and what is happening in the new choral music world. Mm -hmm. They are two worlds that have truly diverged in really fascinating ways. And I think one of the reasons is for, is because of this, the avocational nature of choral music that I had mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I'm really interested in, in my choral music is, is bringing those worlds closer together. But there's a whole part of my performance uh, and, and compositional practice that is very much in the new music vein. And in that new music world, which is again, an, an emphasis um, at, at, at CalArts where I did my uh, upper level training and, and also just in Los Angeles and I mean everywhere, every big city, like this is all over the place. One of the big interests is not just timbre and sound, but the incorporation of electronics. Um, I should say that there actually are no electronic samples in what you 
or what we're going to listen to, it's all live electronics. So okay. I'm singing into a microphone and then I'm processing some of, um, some of the sound. And honestly, not even a lot of the sound. Um, a, a lot of the opening sounds that you'll hear are, um, are just my voice, but I'm using the microphone, like the proximity of the microphone to my face as uh, a way of getting into people's ears and amplifying sounds that wouldn't otherwise be able to hear like really subtle quiet sounds and just even even things like doing some like subharmonic singing where you get really low pitches like oh, right when you get really close to a microphone and you add a little reverb it sounds huge right um so but i'm not adding like pitch shifters or anything eventually what you'll see is that i'm um i'm adding some delays to the sound. And then I'm also looping the sound to create a, a texture that I can work on, on top of. So in that way, it's influenced by some of the study I did of um, North Indian classical music or Persian mm -hmm. classical music, where you have a drone bass. And, um, and then on top of that drone bass, you create melodies right now, instead of just like a single note drone, I often like to create harmonic drones or drones with different kinds of textures that will inform what that, um, what that uh, melodic material looks like. And then later in the piece, I do add a little bit of pitch shifting, like I'll, I'll add like a, a doubler at the fifth and then maybe a doubler at a fifth below. So I'm creating this sort of like mm -hmm. ninth sound. Um, I have a, uh, an electronic keyboard that I'm playing as part of it where I'm tuning or, or I retuned the piano actually to fit the overtone series. So uh, the, the scale is the eighth, through 16th overtone. Okay. Um, and, uh, and then, and then I also have a drum that I started playing at some point. <laughs> so it's, it's like a, it's a, I have like a little floor Tom that I bought on Craigslist out of someone's um, trunk a few months ago. And so I, I incorporated that into it and yeah, so it's, it's all those things, but this is very much what, like it, in many ways, it's very tame for what's going on in the new music world, right? Like the world of electronics. I have a friend, uh, Michaela Tobin, who freely incorporates, you know, static and noise and all kinds of, you know, as well as operatic singing. She like freely mishes and mashes, mashes all these things together. Uh, another colleague of mine, Carmina Escobar, is really well known for her work with voice and electronics. It's 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 not uncommon in this new music world, but it's unheard of in the choral music world. Right. So, you know, so I think part of my um, evangelical goals here are to, are to expose people who are engaging in what's, it's actually a pretty tame and conservative world of choral music and start to show what is, what is available in, in the quote unquote classical music world. And, and mm -hmm. I should say that, that like it's not so different than what we see in pop right like people like beyonce and kendrick lamar and marilyn manson here <laughs> going always back to marilyn manson um all these artists have been doing this kind of stuff for years right vocal processing and using electronics and um and and post editing to create a whole world of of sounds in their compositions and and we're used to those things we're just not used to them in a particular kind of classical environment right. especially a large ensemble environment where where electronics become uh, logistically more difficult to incorporate so yeah. choirs and orchestras don't do this stuff very often but in chamber music for soloists right it's it's way 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 more common i i go to shows like this all the time many of my colleagues engage with this this sort of music and then 
we all go to our church rehearsals once a week and we sing like John Rutter or whatever we need to do. <laughs> um, right. But, and, and, and I'm actually just to say, I'm very blessed to work at a church where we actually do this kind of stuff at my church. Um, we'll do stuff with live electronics. We'll do very experimental music. We'll do all kinds of really fun stuff. So, all right. So let's, let's listen to just a little bit of the beacon real quick. question about this piece yes how fully notated is this oh there's so, no notation at all no notation at all did you have anything written down for yourself to remind you what to do or was it just all sort yeah, of yeah i was like form? no i was like let's i, I practiced it you know mm -hmm. just like i would with uh, again like i think you have to look at it like the the singer songwriter model right like the like the, the performer composer model is the singer songwriter model right for classical music and and it's nothing new right beethoven was made a living for himself by being a piano virtuoso and writing music that only he could perform and it was popular enough that it changed the performance practice paganini was the same way with the violin mm -hmm. meredith monk is the same way with the voice right meredith monk doesn't notate any of her music either only recently because she's in her 70s and she's concerned about her legacy right? As she started to notate the stuff and make it available for other people to perform. And so I, I treat these kinds of compositions uh, and this performer composer practice, like I treated my experiences being in rock bands in college. Like I was in heavy rock slash metal bands um, through, through college and after, and we would come up with our riffs or chord progressions or whatever and we would just practice them over and over again until they were ingrained in us and sometimes we would make little notes oh yeah then i do this i do this times four i do this times two right. and i would do things like i'll do things like that i'll say okay yeah we're going to start here you know with like a subharmonic drone okay eventually we're going to move our way up this is where the drums are going to come in this is where i'm going to this is part b where i add the keyboard and then i'm going to add this um uh you know, this pitch shifter or something like that, right? So there's there's like a form that I that I write down is while the piece is still new. Like I have right. a whole 
you know, evening length set of voice and electronics that I don't need the notes for anymore because I've, I've toured it a little bit and I've performed it enough that I just, I just know the pieces. Right. right? So, um, but yeah, the, if other, like, it's not made for other people to perform just like, you know, Coltrane's solos were not notated and he expects other people to do it. People were so inspired by his solos that they would listen to the recordings over and over again and write them down and learn right. to play them note for note, right? But it was, but it was always as a, um, uh, as a kind of practice, right? Like no one, I think it would be embarrassing for a, a jazz musician to go on stage and perform a Coltrane solo note for note right? It's, 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 it's practice. It's a way of getting into his head and understanding what he did. Absolutely. But then, you know, that, that saxophone player, like she's going to do her own solo on stage and, and make it her own. Right. So that's, that's the kind of, um, it's, it's that sort of approach to music that is really integral to my own practice as a performer and composer. Yeah. Do you have time to talk about one more piece? Sure. All right. So let's talk about the Valley of Wonderment. Uh, you've yeah. got this great recording on YouTube from the First Congregational Church in LA in virtual choir format. Mm -hmm. uh, so let's listen to part of this piece first. Was this a piece you had composed earlier or did you write it during the pandemic for this group? Ah, great question. It is, um, so the Valley of Wonderment is actually part of a, uh, a cantata that I'm in the middle of writing. I can't even call it a cantata, it's really an oratorio. It's, a, it's an entirely acapella oratorio that uses, um, uh, that, that uses different sounds and timbres of the voice instead of instruments. Mm -hmm. And so it's for choir and um, and then a s seven soloists, I believe, um, who play the different characters in the story. And kind of going to what we were talking about in in the beginning, this piece is part of like a new practice for me of looking at my own ethnic and cultural background and incorporating it into my my contemporary music practice. So the Valley of Wonderment is a chapter from an epic poem called The Conference of the Birds. 
which mm. is a medieval Sufi text about the birds of the world going on a journey in search of the king of birds. And it's, and it's a, a parable for the soul's search for truth and for the spiritual path and, and what that is. And so um, Attar, who is a, who is a medieval chemist, um, but also of this, this like kind of amazing poet created this story that it, it uses like the embedded narrative form that is most famously done in the thousand and one nights, but is a part of like medieval Islamic literature mm -hmm. to tell stories within stories that sort of <clears throat> ex explain this larger spiritual journey. Right. And so, um, <clears throat> so this particular performance was like I'm 85, I would say percent, 90% done with the oratorio. And I've been working on okay. it for about a year now. And um, it's been it definitely got nipped in the bud because of the pandemic. <laughs> um, and so the, the the people that I'm working with, I'm working with um, Shole Wolpe, the uh, poet translator, and she's a she's a librettist for for this project. And then my longtime collaborator Andrea Megardician, who's um, a, a choreographer, and he I work with him. Uh, we have a, an interdisciplinary project called the Resonance Collective, that is like we create dance operas. And we've been doing that for about eight years, 10 years now. Um, and so the, the three of us have gotten into the next phase of um, production for, for this show where we're starting to approach um, potential producers. Uh, my, my friend, Ann Harley, who is, um, she was the person who first uh, approached me about this project. She kind of had the idea of like, hey, what if you set the conference of the birds to music? She's a, a, a fabulous soloist that specializes in doing music on mystical and esoteric themes. Uh, so I'm writing the main solo for her. Uh, she's helping us produce this in Claremont at Scripps College. And then we're talking with some producers in LA. It's um, the piece is being commissioned uh, by the esoterics in seattle actually okay so they're going to do a, a premiere in seattle so I've, we, we get into this point where we're like trying to raise money and talking to other producers and seeing if we can get a um a tour of it and so we needed samples and um and so the first congregational church of la where i, I work as um a tenor section leader and as the assistant conductor i i just talked to my friend who's the director who we've been doing new music choral work mm -hmm. together for 10 years and I said, hey, I, I need like a recording of this. Can you help me out? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and he was like, sure. And, and uh, um, most of the people that are in Hex, who are the primary soloists that I'm writing uh, the piece for, mm -hmm. are, are also sing in my church choir. Oh, okay. So it's, it's a very small. So I was like, well, like Hex is, the, these singers are mostly going to be learning it anyway. So can we just like get our section leaders to make a recording of this? We can use it for a church service. As I said, the... Um, the church is really open with the kind of music that we do. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's, that's kind of, I, I didn't write it. Like I wrote it for hex and there's so much crossover that I kind of wrote it for first congregational church. Yeah. Um, and I definitely edited it, um, you know, for this particular virtual mm -hmm. choir kind of thing. Yeah. But, so in addition to this oratorio, what, what else do you have on the horizon? What else are you working on? Um, the oratorio is the is the big big thing right now, but um, I I'm working on a commission for Cor Cantiamo in Chicago. They're a professional choir there, and I'm I'm working with Douglas Kearney, who is a uh, a really amazing innovative poet um, who's originally from LA. I, I met him at Cal Arts while he was a professor there, uh, and now he lives in Minnesota. 
um, but I'm setting some of uh, his music. So those are my my two big uh, composition projects right now. And then I'm I'm continuing with my voice and electronics practice. Mm -hmm. I'm continuing to to develop that. I'm working on. Um, I've got some 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 new ideas for. Um, Actually, it's, so the, the, that piece, the beacon and the subtitle, um, Be Sturdy and Full of Hope, is taken from a cartoonist from the Pacific Northwest who goes by Lord Birthday, um, who I totally love. And he has this really great cartoon called, um, that the, the, the caption of it is Be Sturdy and Full of Hope. And, um, and I just absolutely love his, um, his, his writing and his cartoons. And so I'm, I'm wanting to talk to him about incorporating some of his stuff, like using his text and setting it to music. Yeah. Uh, I've been working with a theater company called Theater Dibuk. And that's a, a, a company that focuses on telling stories around Jewish mysticism, mythology, and history. Um, so I worked with them last summer or like 2019. Um, and we, we did like an interdisciplinary music show together and we're working on a new piece um, that's, that's about the protocols of the elders of Zion, uh, uh -huh. sort of a really bizarre uh, piece that we're that I, I'm working with them on that. So, and then we're we're talking about doing like a larger opera. That's uh, one of the ideas we're kicking around is um, the intersection of Jewish and Islamic um, religious history. So talking about like the Ishmael and Isaac story and and the differences between them and how like they sort of like develop on parallel tracks and I don't uh -huh. know. So th th there's a lot of like kind of big projects in the works, but I'm trying not to look too far ahead um, <laughs> because yeah. Oh, and, and then there's I should say there's other, one other project I'm really excited about, which is a collaboration between Hex and a group in LA called Brightwork. Mm -hmm. um, they're a, an instrumental sextet. And um, we've just recently organized six composers, including myself and six uh, writers from Southern California to create mini operas. So we're, we're asking each composer librettist team to write a 10 minute operatic short story, essentially, um, for some subset of Hex and Brightwork instruments and singers. So there's, there's a lot, but mostly I'm just thinking about the oratorio because I really need to get it done. <laughs> Well, if, if our listeners wanted to find out more about you and look up your music, where would they go? Yeah, they can just go to my website, .com. Um If they're interested generally in the kind of work I'm talking about where I'm trying to bring together new music and new choral music, you can also look at my publishing company, seadot.com. Or uh, you can go to the URL bestnewchoralmusic.com, which will also take you to my publishing company <laughs> website. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and are that's, you on, that's a place. Are you on social media as well? Or can people follow yeah, you on Instagram? Yeah, you, you can find me on F Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, I'm terribly inactive on Facebook, but Instagram <laughs> and Twitter, I like to hang out. So, Cool. Well, yeah. Fahed, it has been an absolute pleasure. You've opened my eyes to a lot of new ideas today, which I really appreciate. My, my pleasure. Thank you for letting me talk at you for like an hour. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure. My guest today was composer Dr. Fahed Siadat. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to your favorite podcast provider. To hear previous episodes, visit sdcompose.com slash movable dough. If you would like to continue this conversation or share your favorite music by Fahed Siadat, join us on our Facebook group, Movable Dough listeners. If you have show or guest suggestions, please email me at movabledough at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving. <laughs>